All right. The message I was going to do was going to be part two, which is only two parts of that message on the day of the Lord. I'm still going to do that, Lord willing, next week. I've actually worked uh, a good amount on it this week and have it really close, but I, but I made it more than, you know, how long is the day of the Lord? I've also made it into a message just kind of contrasting the uh, post-trib rapture with the pre-wrath rapture. Not talking about pre-trib rapture, but pre-wrath rapture. The pre-wrath rapture is very similar to the post-trib rapture. In fact, our pre-wrath brethren are very close to us in our convictions. Uh, in fact, we're often allies <laughs> against uh, the, the viewpoint of our pre-trib brethren because both pre-wrath and post-trib are technically both post-tribulational. Our pre-wrath brothers believe that we'll go through the tribulation, but they believe it ends with the seventh trumpet. They don't understand how the seventh trumpet and the seventh, oh, I'm sorry, they believe it ends with the sixth seal, the tribulation period, and that the trumpets and the bowls are not really part of the tribulation period, but God's wrath, and we're out right before that. But they still teach, which I disagree with, and I thought, you know what? Mm, as I get in the length of the day of the Lord, I want to, people differ on the length of the day of the Lord, and we differ with our pre-wrath brethren because they extend it from the trumpets through the bowls and what have you, and we don't, and, I, and I've been assembling scriptures on that. I don't know if I've ever done a message in all these years uh, on the pre-wrath rapture view in contrast with the post-trib view, so I thought I'll do that, so it extended what I was working on, so, uh, but so it'll be even better. So there'll probably be two titles for that message, How Long Is the Day of the Lord, and uh, the pre-wrath rapture, you know, versus the post-trib rapture. I really don't believe the pre-wrath rapture is truly post-trib, though, because what they're calling the day of the Lord is the tribulation period still. So, uh, but at the same time, I, I, I praise God that my pre-wrath brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, we have a lot uh, of similarity because they're actually warning the church that we have to face the Antichrist, okay? So we're allies because they're actually preparing the church for hard times when our pre-trib brothers and sisters, our hearts break because they're not prepared to face those times coming. In fact, many of them have been led to believe that God would never, only an evil God would let that happen, which sets them up for the very fall. We read about when the tribulation starts. Not that every one of them will fall. I'm sure many won't, but I believe there's a reason Jesus said, I'm telling these things ahead of time. So when these things take place, you will not fall away. That's critical. Anyway, this is part two. And I don't know how many parts it's going to be, but I'm not going to do them in a row. And you may not hear one on the Holy Spirit for several weeks or maybe some months, but I'm doing a little series on the Holy Spirit. And we just did a message because uh, I don't want to do 10 in a row on the Holy Spirit, especially when the Holy Spirit's function and purpose here as the third person of the triune Godhead is to glorify Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit 10 messages in a row. Uh, as awesome as the Holy Spirit is. Amen. But the Holy Spirit himself wants to make sure we stay focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it'd be great to have a series uh, for anybody who is like, man, I really want to dig in and understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because we do, are supposed to study biblical doctrine. And one of the most wonderful, beautiful, sublime doctrines in the New Testament and in the Old, by the way, is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because he's the third person of the triune uh, Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I want to do a part two on that in uh, because last week we did the message called, Who is the Holy Spirit? Amen? Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Come on. Third person. Okay, now you're, you're exactly right. Okay, he's the third person of the triune Godhead. So he is actually, along with the Father and the Son, he's also, he's God. He's a person. I'm hearing a lot of right answers. All those answers are true. Amen. Does he have a personality? Yes. Does he even speak? Yes. yes you know. 
after the service last week, uh, Jimmy goes, because I was showing different Holy Spirits with Holy, different scriptures, like in Acts a couple times, at least a couple times, where the Holy Spirit says, speaks and says, set apart Barnabas, right, for a specific mission. And Jimmy came up afterwards, he goes, another really good one. I was thinking about is 1 Timothy 4.1. And that's a, a verse where it says, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit is speaking of the Holy Spirit there, speaks expressly or explicitly that the latter times some will depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of demons. But notice it says the Holy Spirit says, amen, was speaking to Paul. He's a person. And the fruit of that person, because he's God, is love, peace, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. Those aren't things that come from a force, amen? In fact, it says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 5. So as Christians, man, we should be excited about learning about the Word of God and learning about who our God is and learning about the Holy Spirit because Jesus did have much to say about him and we're supposed to teach all the scriptures. So God expects us to learn about the Holy Spirit. We do believe in being a spirit-filled fellowship. We are a spirit-filled fellowship. But I let you know last time, a lot of churches that are called spirit-filled in fact, if you hear, oh, that's a spirit-filled fellowship, a lot of times when you hear that, that terminology, you think of a church that where, you know, they believe in gold dust, you know, and they, they're all speaking in tongues and flopping on the ground and swinging chandeliers and things of that nature, uh, and where they don't really regard the word of God very highly, and they believe their prophecies are, even if they're false, are still from God in some way, or the prophets that are giving false prophecies are still from God, and what have you, and they talk about the Holy Spirit constantly, and I was mentioning to you that that is not a spirit-filled fellowship. Okay, because a Holy Spirit-filled fellowship will glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. Amen? Holy men of God were moved and, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? So, and even the Word of God is breathed by the Holy Spirit. The prophets prophesied by the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about in this, in this message. He's called the Spirit of truth. Amen? So, His Word, He doesn't contradict His Word. I went to a church years and years ago, and I had to leave that church after four or five years, and I love the people in it, you know? I, I, I love that, but I had to leave because uh, they would all, that was the first church I went to as a Christian, and they would all speak in tongues at once, and I would be like, man, it's not scriptural to do that all at once, you know? And usually there wasn't an interpretation. If there's no interpreter, it's, and it's only one or two to speak at a time you know, in, in rotation and then sit down. If there's no interpreter, he says, keep it between you and God. So yeah, it does seem to indicate that, 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 uh, tongues has some kind of relational prayer language with God because it doesn't say stop all together. It says, let it be just between you and God, which shows it's not just for the edification of the church, but the build, believer can be built up as well. But if there's no interpreter, the church really can't be built up by tongues and what, so forth. And I do understand with my cessationist brethren, those are the brothers and sisters that would say, oh, the, you know, the, the gifts aren't for today, really, not the supernatural gifts anyway, and what have you. I, I understand when they use Isaiah and so forth that the gift of, the, the gift of tongues was actually an outburst of, of, of a witness for the Lord's glory and also a witness against the Jews who were rejecting the Messiah in a transitional period. But I don't believe you can say it was just for those times because Romans 13 talks about when the gifts will cease and it won't be until that which is perfect has come. Amen. It's very clear about that. So the Bible that's why Paul says, don't forbid speaking in tongues because he knew people would look at what he was writing and they're just going to say, oh, throw the baby out the bathwater. Just let's forbid it. Not, let's not deal with it. The Bible says, don't quench the spirit. The Bible says, don't despise prophesying. So we believe in the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But uh, one time I was passing up that pastor, the senior pastor of that fellowship. I was a young believer, you know, and Lisa and I were going there together, not married very long. And he said, how you doing, Joe? I said, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I, I just kind of have 
the problem with the gift of tongues in this fellowship? He goes, what, you don't believe they exist or further today? I said, no, for sure I believe they're today. I just don't believe we're operating in them biblically in this fellowship, you know? And uh, he said to me, he said, we, I believe we've reached a level of maturity in this church where we don't have to follow that. And that was, that was it for me. I'd never heard anything, such a thing in the fellowship. Anybody even say anything like that? And I realized, wow. And Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 14 when he talks about tongues a little bit later in the chapter. And he says to the Corinthians, has, has the word of truth only come to you? Or are you its sole interpreters? I mean, be careful we don't get a mindset where we have kind of an elitist mentality where we could put ourselves, because he says, Paul says, if you disregard what I'm writing, you're disregarding God. And he says, if you ignore this in 1 Corinthians 14, you will be ignored by God. That's serious stuff. And I was already struggling for a while there. And it, that was the, the, the final straw. I was like, nope, nope. Because I was praying every time everybody speaking in tongues, I would pray, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, change this fellowship. You know, bring us to a place of biblical maturity. So what I'm saying, though, is if a, if a, if a fellowship is filled with the Spirit and be led by the Spirit, they will correspond and bring their practices and their beliefs into correspondence with what the Holy Spirit's inspired in his word. Amen? You understand? And some people say, well, our fellowship just focuses on love. You know, we're not really into the doctrines and doctrines can be divisive and everything else. We just, the love, the Holy Spirit, I say, hmm. The Bible says love rejoices in the truth. Amen? And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who inspires the truth. If we truly have love, we're going to love Jesus. We're going to love his word because these are words from the Lord God. It says love, these are words of the Holy Spirit, amen? And if we're looking for a different spirit than the witness of the spirit in scripture, that is a different spirit. And the Bible warns of not only a different gospel, a different Jesus, but in 2 Corinthians 11, as a serpent beguiled Eve, that we could receive a different spirit. And I did a three-part series a long time ago, guys, on the so-called Toronto blessing. I question, is it divine or demonic, you know? Old wine or new lie. I gave like three messages. They're still on YouTube from, I think it's probably 15, 20 years ago I did that. And a lot of these guys, they're, it's a false anointing where these guys do all kinds of bizarre things. They lay hands on each other and they, they pass on this, this supposed spirit, but that's not the spirit of truth. So a true Holy Spirit filled fellowship will have a love for truth. But if they are truly filled with the Spirit. The love of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the joy of the Spirit will exude through that fellowship. And by the grace of God, we can see in this fellowship, and we don't only see people that just love this fellowship because the words preach, but how often do you hear, man, people are so loving there. And I know you guys. I know it's just not on Sunday morning. I know we have just a really loving group of people. That's the work of the Spirit of God in your lives. That's not the old Adamic nature. That's the new nature, which is... Um, brought to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that's a true spirit-filled fellowship. Is, our, is a fellowship made up of believers who are submitted together to the lordship of Christ and who are submitted to the dwelling and the, the leading of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And we need to make sure that's true of each and every one of us because we want to make sure that we are not, only, not only have the Holy Spirit, because you're not a Christian, the Bible says if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are none of his in Romans chapter 8. But that as believers, we aren't content to just have the Holy Spirit for salvation, but we're thankful, but we're also desirous that he has more of us, amen, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. The word filled in the Greek can mean controlled by the Holy Spirit. And if you're sitting around just filled with your own flesh, your own ideas, your own thoughts, you're just kind of going around and you're doing your own thing, you got to say, check me, Lord. Help me pray to be filled more with your spirit. 
Some even disagree with praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know? And so that's unbiblical. Just read Ephesians chapter 3. Paul prays that the whole church at Ephesus would be filled with the fullness of God's Spirit. Amen? It's a great prayer. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. So I pray that my brothers and sisters and myself routinely are filled with the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Very, very important. So that's the Lord God filling you. The, the one who created the entire universe filling you. Now, since I'm rambling on a little bit and have not yet looked at my notes, <laughs> except a little reminder that said to uh, what we're going to do with the day of the Lord, hopefully next week, I better stick to my notes a little bit more if we're going to uh, get through this in time. But thankfully, I only have, I think, less than 10 pages even of notes, so we'll be fine. I don't have 20 pages, so we're in good shape. But I want to encourage you, we, we might be. <laughs> we'll see, time-wise. But uh, I want to talk about and when I sat down and I was praying, I was thinking I was going to be doing a message on, on the work of the Holy Spirit, you know. And the more I prayed about it and thought about it and considered it, I thought, you know, we just did, you know, a message on who the Holy Spirit is, the personal Holy Spirit. So I thought, you know what, let's look at a bit of an overview of the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testament and how he relates to believers because he relates differently to believers in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament. And it helps us appreciate more of the fullness of the gospel in who we are and who we have in the beauty of what it means to be in the new covenant and have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Because the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, he could come upon believers and there was in some way in which he indwelt believers, but not in the way he indwells believers now. And it wasn't for all, he wasn't for, he didn't come upon a, all the believers anyways, it was a select few. It was far different than what we see now in the New Testament. There's prepositions that indicate that he was somehow in them, but there, is a, there seems to be a distinction that Jesus makes very clearly that he was not with them. He's, he's with us in a far different way than he was with them in the Old Testament. Jesus is clear on that. So uh, perhaps one of the best places to go would be Psalm chapter 51, because here we see the Holy Spirit. We see that the King David, go to chapter 51, uh, understand the context here. David had fallen away from the Lord. David uh, was in serious jeopardy in regard in his standing with the Lord. He needed to repent. The Bible says he fell into adultery, fell into murder. He was, had slept with Bathsheba, had her husband killed as the king, sent him to the front lines. Uh, most of you know the story. And he's living with that on his conscience for some time, but his heart was getting hardened to a degree. And then Nathan, the prophet, pointed his bony finger at him and said, thou art the man. That's after David gave him a word picture of a man who stole another man's little lamb. Even though the man had plenty of sheep, he took that man's one pet lamb that laid at the bottom of his bed as his pet, and he killed it and roasted it for his neighbor. And David, David said he was gonna pay back multiple times. That guy, what he did quoting basically or alluding to the Old Testament law that he was in big trouble. That, guy, that guy's a dead man, basically. And then Nathan said, thou art the man. But what David did was far worse. It wasn't a lamb. It was someone's wife he took, amen? It was serious stuff before the Lord. And David was in serious trouble. So David finally comes to a place of repentance where he recognizes the severity of his sin and he needs to get right with God. Because the Bible is very clear, you know. In the Old Testament, you'd be stoned to death if you're an adulterer or a murderer. The scripture is very clear. In the New Testament, too, adulterers don't be deceived. Adulterers are on that list. First Corinthians 6 will not inherit God's kingdom. So if 
you got to repent of that if you're involved in anything like that. And Revelation 21.8, murderers go to the lake of fire. David is in trouble, man. And uh, he prays this radical prayer. And we don't have time to really study the prayer so much. The reason we don't have time to is because we're going to be looking at a broad uh, a breadth of Scripture in the Old and the New Testament and not just here to study Psalm 51. But pick it up then, please, at verse 10. David's just in total repentance. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, keep in mind, in the Old Testament, just like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, when he talks about a person who is under the law, trying to keep God's word, amen, trying to keep his law. And he's just frustrated because the things I don't want to do, I do, and things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And Paul's very clear, he says to them in Romans 7, near the beginning of the chapter, I'm speaking to those who are under the law, you know. He's trying to get them to understand this is what it means to be like under the law, but who saved me from this body of death. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ. The law leads us to Christ. But before Christ came, you could not be empowered and overcome the sin uh, the, the way Prior to Christ's coming, you couldn't overcome sin. You didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit like we have today. So in Romans 7, that was like Paul right there, Romans 7. It's, it's biographical of many Jews' experiences. All the Jews who didn't have the Holy Spirit but had God's truth. Amen? But so the Apostle Paul himself was struggling to obey the Lord. So please understand this. If you say, oh, well, that was the Old Testament, man. Yeah, man, look at what David, well, guess what? You have less of an excuse than David to fall into sin because we have the Holy Spirit. And that's one of my points tonight. We have the Holy Spirit in a way that David did not have the Holy Spirit. But David had the Holy Spirit in a way that we don't have the Holy Spirit as well. What do I mean by that? David was writing scripture. Amen. David was the king of Israel. And now it's important to understand this. In the Old Testament, you would read, you read, more, you read more statements like that the Holy Spirit came upon him. And a lot of times it's when they're prophesying or doing some mighty feat for the Lord. As though the Holy Spirit is abiding with him continually. And it's more upon using the person is the language that's used. Where in the New Testament, we read about the Holy Spirit being in us and indwelling in us over and over and over again. That's the emphasis. However, the Holy Spirit used them for sure. So he prays, create in me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is a great prayer. You know, I, I, I sing this. I love one of my songs I sing. It's on repeat, man. I just... Sing it. I, I mean, I may not sing it for some time, but then I may sing it a few times in a week. I'll be going down the road, creating me, you know, a clean heart, you know, renew your right spirit. I love that song, you know. And he says, creating me a clean heart, O oh God, I renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take what? Your Holy Spirit from me, which clearly indicates that the Holy Spirit, that David had the Holy Spirit in some measure. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain uh, me with a willing spirit. Okay? He wanted to have a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So it's important to understand that in the Old Testament, they did have the Holy Spirit. Certain people did. It wasn't universal for all believers, though, as it is in the New Testament. That's one of the distinctions that you want to keep in mind if we're going to grow in our knowledge of, of God's word and understand the paradigm of Scripture in the Old and New Covenant. So David, number one, he's concerned that God would punish him by removing him as king of Israel. Did that not just happen right before David? Who was king of Israel before David? King Saul. What happened when he blew it? He was removed from being king of Israel when he disobeyed and rejected the word of the Lord. Amen? 
And number two, he is concerned about God taking the Holy Spirit away from him. And the scriptures tell us that King Saul had the Holy Spirit. But then it says, when he rebelled against the Lord, and he wasn't repenting, it says the Holy Spirit departed from Saul, and the evil spirit from the Lord came upon him. And that's why it's very, very important to understand that when people reject the word of the Lord and they go into apostasy, they're not just abandoned, they're also given over often to a depraved mind or a different spirit. That's so why we have to take false doctrine, doctrine and what's going on in the church right now very seriously because there's a mobilization of demonic entities. This is part of the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in that are mobilizing false teachers and the direction they're bringing the church, which is into apostasy. So number one, he didn't want to be removed as king. Number two, he didn't want the Holy Spirit taken from him. Both of those things had happened just to the previous king before him, right? Number three, poor David I'm sure he did not want to stop being used by the Lord to write these beautiful, inspired psalms that he was writing, amen? Before he was even king, he was writing, he was writing psalms and he was writing the scripture as a prophet for the Lord. And number four, he doesn't want to be cast away from the Lord's presence. Uh, to me, all those things would be important, but uh, man, I would be like, that would be the most serious the whole, being cast away from God's presence and not having the Holy Spirit. That would be tragic. Number five, uh, he wants to, his witness to be restored because he was pointed out by God through Nathan the prophet, not only what he had done, but how he, his activity as a bad witness had caused the nations around Israel to blaspheme God because of his wickedness. Don't live a wicked life. Don't be a bad witness before the Lord, Amen. Cry to God and, and obey him and be a good witness. Don't be a hypocrite. So David prayer, prays that his witness will be restored. And it's imperative that you maintain a godly witness before this lost world that we're living in. Okay, most people in the world will never read a Bible, right? But many people are reading you, okay? And just as an atheist and those who hate God want, will search and search so they can try to find some kind of contradiction, okay? And it fails over and over again. Shows how powerful God's word is, amen? But guess what? They're going to try to find in you, since you're the only Bible they read, a contradiction. They're going to try to find inconsistencies in your life so they can call you hypocrite and write off the witness that calls them to Christ so they can continue in their wicked way. Don't give that to them. Like it says in 1 Peter, you know, to live a holy life among the wicked and have holy conduct among the wicked so that they'll be ashamed and so they'll have nothing to answer. So I have to throw up their hands and say, God, you're because of your witness, you know what? I see you're real. And let your witness be steady before the, the non-believers. Amen. So uh, yet, when did David receive the Holy Spirit? It was right after uh, King Saul was deposed as king. And David was empowered uh, to be king. But it's interesting when David, and that's what's interesting. Because the Holy Spirit probably had come upon King David. I believe he did when he was writing Psalms. No doubt. But when he became king of Israel, uh, we read in the scripture uh, that the Holy Spirit had come upon him. And I'll, I'll give that reference a little bit later. But uh, it's interesting. It's important to understand this. And that gives us a clue and understanding as how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. Because the Holy Spirit often came upon people, not all believers, but came on believers, certain believers, usually kings, the judges, people in authority that God wanted to use, uh, prophets and so forth, he'd come upon them in an act of anointing. He'd anoint them for service, okay? To do some duty or some radical work for empowerment. 
okay? To empower them, a king, to do kingly works, make kingly decisions, to have kingly feats, okay? Uh, or he would come upon a prophet to uh, inspire the word of God and make sure his message was coming across, okay? So it's important to understand this when we understand how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. They had to have a special anointing, not a personal all, there's, the distinctions are this. In the Old Testament, not all believers, in fact, most did not, as we as see, it seems to indicate at least, because you only see the Holy Spirit coming on certain people. It was, he wasn't on all believers, number one. Number two, when he came upon the believers, it was often to empower them with anointing for special service to get his will done. Okay? I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit didn't abide with certain people like David. Uh, but David was talking in the context of not being rejected as king of Israel and the Holy Spirit being with him still. But he also was also writing scripture. So we don't know all that was in David's mind. And there's some mystery because we don't have a whole chapter and a bunch of verses dedicated to explain this unique relationship that God had with believers in the Old Testament. What we do see and we are able to surmise from the witness of scripture is he wasn't upon every believer at all times. And he was on certain believers for the empowerment for service. And usually you see the preposition upon, not in, which is indicative, I believe, as well. In fact, even uh, with, with Oth- Othniel, uh, he says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel, Judges 3.10. How about Samson? And, and Samson wasn't very intimate with the Lord, was he? Yet we read in Judges 14.6, the Spirit of the Lord, here's another judge. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat. That is the person that Samson is uh, fighting, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Talking about the, 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 I'm sorry, the lion. So it's interesting. You'll see Samson, 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 you'll see Samson uh, create these, do these wonderful works for the Lord, but you won't read. The Holy Spirit, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit was filling him, burst out from him and tore this guy up or tore this lion up or wiped these guys out. You'll also read, then the Holy Spirit came upon him. You understand? So you see the Holy Spirit designates certain people for service and often he comes upon them and it doesn't typically, we don't typically read that it's in the indwelling sense. And I say typically because I do believe there's in some way he was with certain believers for certain periods of time. Uh, but not in the way he's with New Testament believers as we are going to clearly see. Uh, so he came upon the judges. He also came upon the prophets. We read in 1 Samuel 10.10, when they came uh, to, their, uh, to, their, to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. That is King Saul, the context, 1 Samuel 10.10. Then the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. So the Holy Spirit would come upon prophets who would prophesy. We read about that when you go, you read, you know, Isaiah and other prophets, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Numbers chapter 24, verse 2, even the prophet Balaam, we read, and Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Are you with me? So when you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice this language quite frequently. It's kind of interesting. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, summing up the witness of the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I love that. That's awesome. 
And also with regard to kings, I mentioned already King Saul. First Kings 11.6 speaks of how the Holy Spirit came upon King Saul. Later he leaves Saul, as I mentioned, but here's the reference in Scripture. First Samuel 16.14, the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord was terrifying him. So my understanding from these texts is that while Saul is king, the Holy Spirit is with him in a significant way, you know? And then he leaves him because Saul is, you know, it's not just Saul, you know, committed a sin. It was a horrific sin, but he hardened his heart. Then he went and sought the witch of Endor, remember? He did, because the Lord wasn't listening to him because his heart was wrong. Where David was a man after God's own heart and cried out to the Lord and God knew that he would. And some believe that David was lost when he, when he fell. But if he died in that state, yeah, he would be. But no, when he says, take not the Holy Spirit for me, that to me is very clearly indicative that he still wasn't lost yet. And that is indicative to me too that if, you've, if you go through a struggle, God, the Lord will be with you. However, you have to also recognize that you cannot continue in rebellion and die in rebellion against the Lord. Or there could be a time in your life where you've hardened your heart so much where you no longer hear the voice of the Lord. And for certain people, it says in Hebrews chapter 6, after they fall away, even after they had received the Holy Spirit, then they fall away. Uh, And in Hebrews 10, it says they insult the spirit of grace. It's very important in the New Testament times. It says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, Nobody has to worry about that if you're following Jesus or you want to follow Jesus because those who are impossible to renew to repentance are those, it says, who in the present tense, and I don't have time to go in the Greek construction there, but they're continuing to crucify in the present tense Christ afresh. They're continuing in rebellion against Jesus. Okay, scholars debate those passages, but uh, I believe a close look at the Greek and a close look at all the New Testament passages on backsliding and apostasy indicate over and over and over and over and over and over and over again a backslidden believer can come back to the Lord. Like the prodigal son, he was dead, but now he's what? Alive again, amen? Paul, in Galatians chapter five, verse four, you know, you have uh, been cut off from the Christ. You have fallen from grace. Yet he says that he strives that Christ would be formed in them again. And that those who are spiritual in that same book are to restore those who'd fallen. And in Romans chapter 11, those believers who became unbelievers and they're cut off because of their unbelief are able to be grafted back in again. Amen? You know, return to your first love, the Lord says in Revelation. So all the promises are like that. But what's going on there in Hebrews chapter 3, just because I know every time I quote that scripture, it comes up after service if I don't uh, mention it or so we get emails and stuff about it. And I, I've covered it f- quite a few times. But the context in the book of Hebrews is hardening your heart. Chapter 3. Don't harden your heart. Amen. Don't, by the, don't let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and falling away from the living God. You know that that passage comes in between? different warnings to where your heart can become hard against God and you don't hear his voice anymore. It talks about the voice of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, even when someone's heart is hard, what's still there for a while? The voice of the Holy Spirit. Speaking to them as he was speaking to David. But if you continue in your rebellion, eventually you'll continue to drown out the Holy Spirit's call to repentance. Remember Jesus in, uh, in Hebrews, by the way, listen to this. In Hebrews, it says in chapter 12 that as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The quotation for Proverbs. You know, that's to the Laodiceans church by Jesus too in Revelation chapter three. I love the intertextual. I love the scripture because it's intertextual and that's what gets me in trouble when I, so I don't really look at my notes a lot, you know? Because the scriptures are just so rich. But when you look at the context of Revelation three, the Laodicean church, 
Jesus says to them, as many I love, I rebuke and chasten. He says they're lukewarm. I said, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, therefore I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now he says to that church, who's lukewarm, about ready to spit out of his mouth, behold, I stand at the door and what? And knock. If anyone hears my voice, let him open. I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. What's the context? Even at backs of the church, he's continuing to knock. My point is this. If you got away from the Lord, I don't think the Lord says, oh, too late, too late, too bad. No, man, he's way more merciful than all of us. How many times should I give my brother? Lord, up to seven times? 70 times seven. That's his heart. But you need to repent, though. Amen? You need to come back. His voice is there. But he, and he does know who will refuse to come back. So eventually it's like, okay. Because he's sovereign. He knows everything. So you never have to be, cons- what you need to be concerned about is, well, that means if I fall away, I could come back. You may never come back. Because you know how many people have fallen away and thought, I'll come back later to the Lord maybe. And then their hearts get so hard. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that they forget they were even washed from their past sins. I can't get my brain around that. That you, get, you can actually get to the point where you forget that you were even forgiven, even saved, washed. But it can't happen. Just like how many people get married in the, the, their wedding day when they're kissing their bride or their groom, they think they're going to divorce. They don't. So don't be cavalier about your walk with Christ. Be very serious about it. And recognize that you have a relationship with the third person of the triune Godhead. If you're a believer, he lives in you. And we're called not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but he's patient because he's God. Amen? He's full of loving kindness and he's been patient with you this far. And Jesus already died for all of your sins. Amen? So you simply need to trust him and ask the Lord for cleansing and recognize that God's like, I didn't know he was going to do that. God's like, what in the world? I didn't, no, I didn't see that coming. That's not our God. He has perfect foreknowledge, amen? He saved you knowing you'd blow it. But he saved you by grace through what? Faith. You must trust the Lord. And the just shall live by faith, Hebrews chapter 10. But if he draws back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Who? Who's the he? The just shall live by faith. The one who's been justified. He must live by faith. Now, it's important to understand this, that, that uh, David... The Holy Spirit was upon him, and God chose him to replace King Saul. And then he's in this dilemma, this situation, but he repents. So what we're seeing is that in the Old Testament, whether it was judges, whether it was prophets, whether it was kings, the Holy Spirit would come upon them to empower them for service to do certain feats, whether it was the feats of the judges who acted somewhat like kings, or the kings, or, or the prophecies of the prophets and what have you. Uh, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is also with the believer, but in another way, in a deeper way, as I'm saying, but he also is upon believers for service, okay? There's different gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we read about various miraculous gifts, okay? There's, there's you know, everybody always, when they bring up gifts, they'll talk about the gift of miracles or tongues or interpretation of tongues. Tongues is usually the bottom of the list, by the way, guys. I believe that's not by accident. That's because Paul knew that there would be, and the Holy Spirit knew actually, uh, that there would be a tongue movement and people would have a problem with their tongues. There's been a two, two types of tongues that have divided the church, okay? Three types. A gossip tongue, a false doctrine tongue, and an emphasis on tongues above all the other gifts, okay? I praise God for the gift of tongues, that God's given the church that gift and interpretation and so forth, but he's given gift of healing, he's given gift of miracles, he's given, given, given gifts of discernment, of spirits. What happened to that gift? That's one the church really needs today, amen? 
People need to discern the difference between the Holy Spirit and unholy spirits. Amen? Church is lacking in, in uh, uh, you know, very, very important gifts that you very rarely hear about, you know? So uh, there's a mentions of a bunch of different gifts, but there's something that goes beyond that. There's, uh, so God can give you these miraculous gifts, but there is also the enhancement of God-given natural abilities too. What I mean by that, go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. When you get there, verse one, he says, and this is important if you want to be used by the Lord for his glory, you want to make sure you are not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind so you can allow God to use you more. Therefore, verse one, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that's the first 11 chapters, God's grace and mercy at work in individuals and nations, to present your bodies as a living, holy, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now look at verse three. For through the grace given to me, it's all by God's grace, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. I just love that. He's saying, he's gonna talk to about the various gifts that God's given them. And he's letting them know that the very things that he is therefore speaking to them at that moment is by the grace of God, that he's even operating by the gifting of God. And he says, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought. That's when ministry doesn't get done. When we think of ourselves pompously or too highly, I'm good or I'm great, we're nothing. We're dung, amen? You know what Paul says, I mean, without the Lord, right? We're nothing, amen? We're worse than nothing without Jesus because nothing would be almost like neutral, right? But we're sinners and rebellion to God before we're saved, amen? Jimmy, Jimmy was saying, he was quoting someone saying, we're like dirt clods. I didn't say to Jimmy, but I'm thinking, we're more like dung clods, okay? Tell you the truth. Dirt clods, dirt. And you, you animate dirt, we're animated dirt, amen? And we are, we're dirt, animated I mean, we're made, NASA, I was telling Jimmy, yeah, NASA did a study and they looked at all the elements under the ground or what we're made of. We already knew that, right? Genesis chapter one, right? Didn't have to have a big NASA study to figure that out. I don't know how much money they wasted on that, but oh, they proved the Bible again. But we're worse than dirt clods. Dirt clods are dirt. We're dung clods, okay? We're, we're unclean, amen? And God, by his grace, has saved us. And Paul says, don't think of yourselves more, whole, uh, more highly than you ought. What you ought to think, brothers and sisters, and what I need to think, we all get, think is that, I love what Paul says. And this is, this is a verse that I love to go back to. Paul says, what do we have that we have not received? That's a humbling verse, man. That means everything that I have that's good, it's a gift from God. And I should be thankful. And boy, that puts a smile. It's like, how can I have a smile? You just called me a dung clod. yeah. Without Jesus, that's, you were these earthen vessels, man. We're in trouble, amen? Look up dung clods. I wonder if that's, I don't want to take anybody's turn, but that, that, sounds, that sounds like it, it fits us, right? Without Jesus, how many can say, yeah, that's me without Jesus? I know it's me without Jesus, I'm a dung clod. But guess what? He changes that because we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Jesus lives in us, amen? Transforms us, and he's making us his jewels. Remember that, all those verses? Pearl of, we're like pearls to him. We're jewels he snatches up. He's making us like diamonds. He's making like gold. It's like, what in the world are you doing? All by his grace. But by God's grace, it says in verse three, Paul says, for through God's grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have a sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And we don't have time to 
dive into this, but I want to point out a few things real quick. Verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body, and all our members do not have the same function. See the members of your body, different functions. Thank you, Lord. Verse 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If service, how many of you guys serve the Lord? And help one another, bless one another for Christ's sake in his serving. Or he who teaches, how many of you teach God's word, whether it's to children, adults, or whoever, in his teaching, verse eight. Or he who exhorts, that means encouraging, uh, in his exhortation, it could be warning, it could be uh, encouraging in a positive way, it could also be warning in a negative way. He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Do you notice some of the things on that list are actually natural things that people that don't know Jesus have? Amen? Like, like leading. Even some non-believers are merciful. But as Christians, we become sanctified and we have giftings by the Holy Spirit to where even some of our uh, so-called natural abilities are enhanced by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're made more sensitive in areas. And God amplifies these things that we're born to be, being image bearers of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's pretty heavy. So when you think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I don't want to get into all the gifts here because that's not this message, right? But it is, I have to get into them a little bit because, and that's another message or two or three coming up in this series. But I have to get into a little bit because we're talking about the way he works in the Old and the New Testament. But I think it's really awesome because most people don't understand how this works. They just think there's supernatural gifts. And there's special gifts that somebody didn't have. And then all of a sudden they get them. When they're born again, they get one or more. And then they get more when they pray for it. But when you read the scriptures carefully, there are supernatural gifts that are brand new, that people could have, that they didn't have before they were believers for sure. No doubt about it. Like discerning spirits or you know, tongues or working in miracles or what have you. But there's also natural abilities that God has given you, whether it's many people just are service orientated. Many people are orientated to uh, give in certain ways. And there's, but guess what? The Holy Spirit comes upon you as a believer and empowers you in a special way where he magnifies those things that, God, that show up in God's image when he restores that image where they become more and more Christ-like. And then he can actually move more powerfully in certain areas as he sees a church that's in need in certain areas. I do believe that we need to understand the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in a church because I also believe that God can sovereignly say, mm, I'm going to empower these guys with this more and this person with this more and that. Because he's sovereign. It says he gives he, he, as he wills. So we just trust the Lord. So if we're all crying out to the Lord, Lord, use me. Use me to your glory. And I personally don't say, I, I pray with different gifts I know that God's given me. But at the same time, I pray, God, use me in the best ways you see fit. I Because that's what I want ultimately, you know. So however you want to use me. And it may be in different ways he uses us, but, and it definitely is because we're, we're different, but I want you to understand, we do see uh, that the Holy Spirit's involved in the spiritual enhancement of natural abilities, which could be showing mercy and leadership, teaching things of that nature that non-believers have too, but believers get in a u- unique way because the Holy Spirit enhances those things. So it's important that we understand uh, some of these uh, distinctions. Now, there's a different way, big time, that we have the Holy Spirit than the Old Testament. Because what I just mentioned in regard to certain gifts, there are certain gifts that are here in the Old Testament or the New Testament 
that you don't see in the Old Testament, supernatural gifts, like tongues, for instance. But there, but there are anointings and empowerments and for service in the New Testament, much like there was in the Old Testament. So there's some similarities there too, but there are two, two huge distinctions when you approach this subject and you think about it biblically and you say, Lord, I want to understand what's going on here. And I mentioned them already, but now I'm going to go into the New Testament and further prove uh, the, the proposition we pretty much started with, uh, which is the idea that the Holy Spirit indwells believers in a different way in the New Testament than he did in the Old Testament, number one. And number two, that he's in all believers, which we don't see him being upon or in all believers in the Old Testament, which I think is very, very important to understand. Those are two uh, major distinctions. Uh, he is in us in a different way, and he uses all believers, and that's important to understand. Now, uh, this language we, we re- read about, come upon, come upon, come upon. If you go to like Romans uh, 8, 9 through 11, we read about the Holy Spirit indwelling believers. Same with 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, amen? He lives in us as believers. But there's another dimension, a third one as well. And I'm gonna, we'll kind of explicate both of those in a, in a moment. But there's another thing you have to understand. There's, 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 a, there's not just two, three, four, there's a lot of different things going on with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, several beyond what we can even get into in the New Testament that you don't see in the Old. But one of those things is, in the New Testament, Jesus said you must be what? You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, they were not born again in any way that we are born again. Okay, now they were begotten in a certain way, and he called them even his children, but they weren't born again by the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit indwelling them uh, like we are. Okay, that's very, very clear in the scripture. In fact, in Titus chapter three, verses three and four, we read this. The apostle Paul to the young pastor Titus says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration, that means to be made new. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Catch that? So we're actually regenerated. We're actually renewed by the Holy Spirit when we become believers in Christ. You don't read that over and over again in the Old Testament. You don't read that anywhere in the Old Testament that they're you know, regenerated and renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit through faith and so forth. Now, it's quite interesting because Jesus said to Nicodemus, chapter three, verse three, to Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. But two verses later in John chapter three, verses three through five, verse five specifically now, he says you must be born of water and of what? Of spirit. And Nicodemus probably being facetious is saying, what, am I supposed to come through my mother's womb again? And Jesus is loving to him, but he's also kind of harsh, you know? He says, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? And he doesn't say teacher. In the Greek, it's the teacher. Like he's like the main teacher many, many people look to. You're the teacher of Israel? You know, he says, how can I explain to you spiritual things or heavenly things, he says, if, I can't, if you can't understand earthly things? Because what he was missing is that in Ezekiel, it talked about this new covenant that would come through the Messiah, where God would take the heart of stone, that hard heart of Israel, and make it a heart of flesh. You know, it would beat, it would, it would pulsate, it would have the life of God. And that there was a new covenant coming. 
that God would have with his people. And Nicodemus was missing that because Nicodemus and the Pharisees, many of them, believed that they were saved uh, by their works or by their heritage, being Jews. Uh, I know the whole debate right now, it's been going on for several years now on Paul's writings and, and uh, you know, the, the Jews really felt they were saved through law and so forth. And well, it's very, very clear when you go through scripture that even though many other doctrines would say it was by faith, even in Judaism in the first century, upon a practical level, many of them thought they were saved by their good works, no doubt about it. And many of them thought they were saved because they were Abraham's children by their inheritance as children of Abraham. Just go ahead and read Matthew chapter three and read John chapter eight from John to Baptist and Jesus. They both address that. And then read Romans chapter nine through 11. Paul deals with that problem as well. So uh, they have these different problems where on one hand, well, I'm a child of, because I'm my dad. I mean, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm in. On the other hand, it's like, but I got to do all these Jewish things. They're in favor. And it's like, Nicodemus, you must be born again into the kingdom of God. In other words, your, your heritage and whatever works you're doing are not going to get you in. There needs to be a radical transformation of the heart to the extent where you're not only a new creation, but where the Holy Spirit, where God lives in you. And that only comes through forgiveness of sins. Because when Nicodemus facetiously says, what, must I come through my mother's womb again? Jesus goes on to describe. A lot of people kind of stop there. They don't realize Jesus gives the answer, how to be born again. Just verses 14, 15, and 16. He talks about how Moses says he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, right? Even so the Son of Man shall be lifted up. Amen? That he that believes in him would have eternal life. And then in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Being born again is to receive eternal life. And Nicodemus, you know the story. You're the teacher of Israel. All the Israelites were dying. Their lives were over. They were ebbing away. But Moses was commanded to put the serpent up on a pole. And anybody who looked to that pole and saw what was going on there and obeyed and looked in faith, they were healed. They had new life. Amen? Amen. And just as a serpent, which was the, a picture of God's wrath falling upon the Jews, would, be, would fall upon the Son of Man. Who, he, we see the serpent, God's wrath. We see the pole. Where's, where's Jesus? He's talking to Nicodemus. <laughs> you know? Just occurred to me. They're all three there. You know? Uh, so you have the, the wrath going to be poured out on, that, on the person that Paul, and Jesus isn't up there, but he will say later in that same gospel, the, the Son of Man will be lifted up and draw all men to himself. Amen? So he tells Nicodemus, that's a picture of being born again. But then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him <laughs> will not perish but have eternal life. So being born again and being born of water and spirit, you must be believe in the son you must put your faith in jesus but guess what jesus is going to have to do for that to happen he's going to have to die on the cross he's gonna to have to pay for our sins why is that so important get your brain around this now why couldn't the holy spirit indwell and i want to show you this because look what he says to his apostles before i ask this question go to john chapter 20 go to john chapter 20 verse 28 Look what Jesus says to his apostles before, right after his, uh, well, John chapter 20. Okay, I want to get done on time. So 8.30, I got 15 minutes. Understand this. Jesus says in the gospel of John to his disciples, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he shall be what? 
Oh, a lot of people quoting that last part. He says, say it louder this time. The Holy Spirit is with you, but he shall be what? In you. He was with them in special ways, wasn't he? Still go to John 20. He was with them in very, very special ways. They were doing miracles, right? They were casting demons out. And he said, don't rejoice that you power to cast out, power to cast out demons. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. His main concern was their salvation, but he wants to use them by his spirit for power. And then he says, and the Holy Spirit's with you, but the Holy Spirit will be in you. That shows even the apostles who were doing all these radical miracles, the Holy Spirit was not in them in the way that he would be in them after Jesus died for their sins. Then when Jesus dies for their sins, then you go to Luke or John chapter 20, verse 28. John 20, verse uh, 20, let me see, make sure I get this right. Do I have the right scripture? No, I don't have the right scripture there. So I'll get it for you in a second. It's in John 20. Help me look, Lord. John 20, verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord because he's resurrected, right? So Jesus uh, said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also what? Send you. And when he had said this, he what? Breathed on them and said to them what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Wow. Now, if you ask most people, when did the church receive the Holy Spirit? They almost always will say, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the birthday of the church. And I don't even necessarily call that the birthday of the church. I call that the empowerment of the church. Because Jesus was already, had already called certain people to, you know, and told them church things like, you know, I'll build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know? Matthew chapter 18, before Pentecost, if they go, if someone sins, confront them. If they don't repent, bring one or two with you. If they still don't repent, bring it before the church. Amen. So, I mean, technically you could say, and maybe, you know, God knows when he, God knows, there's not specific verses. Is this is the day the church was birthed? It doesn't say that. So we think, oh, maybe Acts 2. Or that's, but it's at least the empowerment of the church. Amen. But a lot of believers think that that's when the Holy Spirit first indwelt New Testament believers. No. Before the day of Pentecost, which comes after this, right? He tells them to stay in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Tells them to tarry in Jerusalem, and then the Holy Spirit will come upon you and endue you with power from on high. Amen? And you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. They're going to be my witnesses. He's going to empower you to go out and be witnesses to serve me. But guess what? Prior to that, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, now some exegetes, who I respect, don't agree with her on this point, they, they say this must have been symbolic. I'm like, no, it <laughs> doesn't say anything, it doesn't look symbolic, you know. Yeah, I mean, why didn't he just say, hey, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit later again. No, he breathes on them, says receive the Holy Spirit. I believe what's happening there is, because what's going on here? What's, what's the big picture? This is what I was going to say to you. Why didn't the Holy Spirit live in them? Why was he with them but not in them in the way that he would indwell in them? It's the same, the answer to that question is the same answer to the question, why in the Old Testament when they died did they not go to heaven but went to Abraham's bosom? When you answer the, that question, you'll have the answer to the second question, I believe. Are you with me? 
their sins had, well, he would pronounce their sins forgiven. He said, you, you know, your sins are forgiven you at times, but they hadn't been taken away yet, right? Because Christ had not paid for their sins, amen? So he could forgive them and not hold against them. I'm not gonna punish you, but it was in light of the fact that he was going to the cross to die for them. He hadn't done that yet though, amen? Jimmy, you're right. So he hadn't died for their sins yet. That's the answer. In the Old Testament, we know that nobody had actually been into the third heaven in God's presence before Christ died on the cross. How do we know that? Because Jesus himself said that no one has yet ascended to the Father, John chapter one, except the Son of Man. No one. And guess what? Even the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. And he was dying on the cross. So that day, a lot, a lot of commentators say, well, that, they went to heaven, he went to heaven that day. No, wrong, not true. Because when Jesus rises from the dead, after that, he definitely wasn't in paradise in heaven yet because Mary Magdalene is clinging to him. He says, stop clinging to me for I have not what? Amen. I have not yet ascended to the Father in heaven. Are you with me? So we know where he went because he said in John, in Matthew chapter 12, around verse 30 or so, he said, uh, not verse 30, but in that chapter, he says to them that even as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man beware in the heart of the earth. Wow. So when he says he didn't ascend, wherever paradise is, it's not in heaven. He hadn't ascended to heaven yet. Where was it? Abraham's bosom. Remember Luke chapter 16? You had the rich man and then you had Lazarus and Lazarus dies. Did Lazarus go to heaven? No. He went to Abraham's bosom. That means Abraham, the father of faith, was still not even in heaven. And we know that it was under the earth in a place we call Hades. And we think of Hades, a lot of times people think of hell. Hell is a lake of fire. Hades is a holding tank with a paradise side and a place of sadness and torment. So you have the rich man who says, I'm in torment in this flame. Not so much torment that he couldn't talk. And he was like, ah, screaming continuous, but he was in pain with a dry mouth, in pain, in torment. And he's saying, have Lazarus, Abraham, dip his finger in water and come and put a little drop on my tongue. Which is a kind of ironic because... Lazarus, when he was at that guy's house, was just hoping to get a piece of little tiny morsel, a little crumb. And it, it, Jesus shows how that got reversed. And it was really heavy when you think about this. Because we know Ephesians chapter 4 says that he who ascended first descended into the lower parts of the earth. That's Ephesians 4. Jesus descended. Before he ascended, he descended first into the lower parts of the earth. That was during those three days. And we don't know all that went on, but we know some things that went on. If this was a resurrection message, we spent our whole time on this. So I'm just spend a few minutes on it. But it's quite interesting because we do know this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So when he's put to death on the cross in the flesh, he's made alive in the spirit, whereby he went and preached to the spirits that are now in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah. So I'm like, oh, he's sharing the gospel. Is he sharing the gospel there? I got that question recently. It's a good question, but no. Because I, I pointed out, I got this question Sunday about that specific verse. And I said, no, that's not what's going on. It's not the gospel. Because it's a sp select, specific people he's preaching to. And the word preaching in the Greek means to announce. Doesn't mean, doesn't entail the gospel. It says he's just announcing something. Who? To who? Not everybody. Not all the dead. And he could very well be on the paradise side when he's doing this. Where Abraham and Lazarus are. Because they could communicate, right? And that's the way I think of it. I don't, don't know for sure. But, you know, the Apostles' Creed, you know, says he descended into hell. It's talking about that incident. 
Not that he went to hell uh, to be punished. Uh, the word faith teachers will teach that he went to hell to suffer for our sins. No, it says he was put to death on the cross for our sins, amen. It's on the cross that he said it is finished. It's through the shedding of blood that we have the forgiveness of sins, amen. John Calvin, by the way, in his institutes, states, quotes the Apostles' Creed, but misunderstands it and states that Jesus didn't finish the work of salvation on the cross, but had to be suffered in hell. Okay, John, John Calvin is saying the same thing. The, the word faith teacher is saying the same heresy that John, John Calvin had said years earlier, and still in his institutes. I mean, he never took it out, even though he revised it several times. It's not a, it's not a biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is he, went, he announced his victory. Uh, and why would he announce it to the spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah? Well, I believe ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first time Proto, the the Evangelium, the gospel was shared clearly, although I believe it's throughout chapter 1 as well. If you've listened to our messages on typology, I go through several verses in chapter 1 that from the beginning, tohu wabohu, that new creation, the spirit of God hovering over the waters, bringing new creation, a picture of the gospel, but not, it's never spoken so clearly as right off the bat in chapter 3, verse 16 of the serpent when God brings judgment upon him and that you'll bruise his heel. You're going to bruise the seed of the woman's heel. That would be the Messiah came through the woman. Amen. You're going to bruise his heel. And Jesus, metaphorically, his heel was bruised because he rose from dead, but literally his heel was bruised on the cross as criminology's forensic studies show that that's where the blood gathers. The lowest point of your extremity of your body that's leaning against something is where the bruises form. His heel was literally bruised. Blows me away. Anyway, so, but he says, of the serpent that the seed of the woman would what? Which the Messiah would crush his head, amen? So guess what Satan was trying to do ever since that prophecy? Destroy the seed of the woman. Not allow the Messiah to come forth. That's why Israel is Satan's great enemy, to destroy Israel before the Messiah would come. I did a message, a Christmas message, 20 years ago, maybe 15, I don't know, called Pulling Off the First Christmas. I went through all these different passages where Satan tries to stop the seed from coming. Even in Revelation chapter 12, talks about how the man-child is born to this woman, right? And Satan tries to destroy it. But he ascends to the Father. He can't do it. He does, he's not able to do it. So I believe through the sons of God, the fallen angelic beings that had relations with the daughters of men and seeking to corrupt humanity that brought the flood, the, those demons failed in what they tried to do in thwarting God's plan to bring redemption through the seed of the woman, the Messiah. And Jesus was there announcing the victory couldn't do it guys and the bible says when jesus rose from the dead in revelation chapter 1 verse 17 18 that john saw him fell on his face as dead a dead man and john jesus laid his right hand upon him and said don't fear fear not i am he that liveth and was dead behold i'm alive forevermore and have the keys of what hades and death because we were under the bondage of death before we were saved before Jesus died on the cross, we need to be saved from self. We need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from Satan. We need to be saved from the grave. We need to be saved from hell. Amen? And Jesus' atonement on the cross gives us all those victories. Amen? And so he has the victory. So the Bible tells us that when he went to the lower parts of the earth to set free those who had been held captive, that he led captivity in his train. So all these different saints, Abraham, Lazarus, right? Moses, I mean, you just go on and on and on. Jacob, Isaac, and through the prophets, they all left with Jesus to the heavenly realm. And many rose from the dead. Matthew chapter 27 and visited their relatives. Can you imagine that? You know, your aunt showing up and one of your, in, in, you know, your grandfather, and they look better than you do. And you're like, what in the world? You know? 
And as, as an example of what he was doing in the resurrection, you know, now we're not told if they continue to live on in those bodies or if it was temporary or what. We're not given the information. But we know that future resurrection, first fruits, is at his coming. So I believe they had lived for some time longer and then uh, had died. But it's, a, it's, it's not real clear in the scripture. But understand this. Before Christ died on the cross, all these saints were going to Abraham's bosom. Why? That's the place where the faithful would go when they died in the Old Testament. Why weren't they brought to heaven? Because Jesus had not what? Paid the price and died on the cross yet. And God is so holy that you can't be in his presence without being consumed. And now their sins are forgiven because the payment has been made. And now the Bible says if you die to be absent from the bodies, be what? Present with the Lord. Well, in the same way that we couldn't go into God's presence, into his very presence, because of our sinfulness and our sins to be taken care of, the Lord God, by his Holy Spirit, would not deal, would not dwell in the depths of our being, in the inner sanctum of our hearts, until after Jesus died on the cross. That's why I believe Jesus said, and this is, I believe, the only way you can make total sense of all these scriptures, is that's why Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's with you, but he shall be what? In you. He says that not long, just days before the cross, just days before he dies. And then what happens? He dies on the cross. And then what happens? He rises on the first day of the week. What's, what happens really quickly? He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he's risen in a garden tomb. It's in the garden that they lost the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now it's all reversed. The second Adam rises and breathes on and says, remember God had breathed on Adam originally and he became a living soul. Well, now the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the second Adam, reversing the curse. So much going on there, isn't there? He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And they're born again. You must be born again, Nicodemus, to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born of water and spirit. How can this happen? My mother's womb again? As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's how it happens. Are you with me? So the relationship to us as believers and the Holy Spirit Changed after Christ died on the cross. Now he lives in us and he empowers us. Amen? Now what I love, man, is, and the reason I love to just go Old Testament, New Testament, just, we've been in Genesis, we've been in Revelation, all in books in between, is all this should demonstrate for you the word of the Spirit is coherent. It's one book, you know? You don't go to a bunch of scriptures that contradict what I'm saying here. It's just all so awesome. So we should be encouraged in a thousand and one ways, including, wow, look at the inspiration of scripture but there's another dimension which I won't belabor but I'll just say this in the Old Testament there was not only the promise that we would be born and could be born again right a new covenant sins forgiven Holy Spirit living in us God totally changing our hearts but there was this promise that the Holy Spirit wouldn't just be for kings and for prophets and for judges but we read in Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Your young men will see visions. 
Uh, even on the male and the female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Isn't that beautiful? I'll display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. The moon's been really pretty lately at sunset, huh? I'm like, it's going to look like that, but it's going to be nasty everywhere when it really goes down, right? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it'll come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered or saved. It's just amazing. And then when you come to this and you come to Acts chapter 2, and men and women are speaking in tongues as God's displaying that this is being fulfilled, and they're like, what's going on? It's early. These guys are drunk or what? And Peter says, no. He says, in Acts chapter 2, this is that which was prophesied or said or spoken by the prophet Joel. Then he quotes the passage I just gave. And I could go there, but I'd be quoting the same thing I just read. Pretty heavy. So now, guess what? Male or female, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. Amen. And receives the Holy Spirit. Not for the Holy Spirit just to be upon you, but to indwell you and live in you in the deepest sanctum of your being and to use you for service, to build one another up in the faith, to be a witness to the lost, to be the bride of Christ, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that hears say, come. Whosoever will let him come and drink of the water of life freely, amen. So the Holy Spirit wants to use us and empower us. And the Lord's saying to you, are you going to allow me to use you? His eyes go to and fro throughout the earth looking for those he can strengthen, amen. He wants to use us. Or will you say, man, no, because you know what? I've, I've served you and this happened to me. I served you and I went to Mexico and I came back from an evangelical trip serving you and I pulled over and you let me get my car ripped off and I'm not serving you anymore because I, it, nope, that's not what Nick's saying over there, are you, Nick? Amen? Nick loves Jesus. He's saying, you know what? This is part of the deal. Nick's saying what I went through is nothing compared to what Jesus went through. And I know because Nick said, and I know who Nick is, but I also knew the beginning of service. He said, hey, but this and this didn't happen. This happened. I'm alive. You see, a believer that looks to Jesus says this, it could be worse. You always need to say that. It could be worse. And praise God that God, I'm able to rejoice my trials because I believe his promises that he's going to work this situation that happened out, happened in Mexico for his glory. Because you know what? Jesus said, pray that laborers would go out into the harvest field because the harvest is ripe, ready to be picked. But the laborers are few, amen? And the Lord champions people like Nick out there and all of you guys that are saying, hey, I want to serve Jesus no matter what the cost. Oh, you'll be tested. You do? Okay, this may happen. That may happen. But what we want to do is keep our hands to the plow because the Spirit of God is going to continue to be at work whether we work or not. He's going to use people. We are not indispensable, Amen. But the Holy Spirit is indispensable. We can't convert one person. Only the Holy Spirit can convert people through us, amen? So we must pray, God, use me, fill me. So I want to encourage you guys now, because I'm going to get off and start talking about the Holy Spirit and evangelism and on and on and on. But I, wanted to, I think the point is clear, amen? What are the different ways, and shout it out, what's the different ways the Holy Spirit is with the church or in the church than, now than he was in the Old Testament? One way is, he indwells us in a, in, a, in a special way. Amen. Number one. Also, number two, so we could be used for his service, but that's the Old Testament too. But so we could be born again. Amen. And number three, it wasn't exclusive to just what? A few people. Now it's for who? All believers. Isn't that awesome? It doesn't matter who you are. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. Amen. That we're all children of God through faith in Christ. We have different roles for sure. Amen. But we're all equal at the foot of the cross because 
The Lord Jesus made us in his image. He died for everyone equally, amen? He loves us. So we need to go and share the gospel with everybody because he's willing to pour his spirit upon whosoever will can be saved, amen? So we have an inclusive gospel, but it's a conditional gospel, amen? Salvation is by grace through faith. People have to repent and turn to Christ in faith. So I want to leave you with this tonight. You have this wonderful promise. And that's what Peter goes on to say in Acts chapter 3. Because they, they realize the power, they see the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says this promise of receiving the Holy Spirit is not only for you, but for your children, as many as the Lord shall call. So guess what? The Bible says he gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. How do we obey him? He's talking about obeying the gospel. We turn from a life of rebellion to him, and we turn to Christ. We put our trust in him, put our trust in the gospel, that he died for our sins, that he rose again. Amen. We pass from death to life. And as soon as you put, turn from a life of rebellion against the Lord, and you put your faith in Christ, and you, you put your trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Amen. And you have that relationship with the Father, and you're with him, and he's with you. John chapter 14, forever. And then guess what? You die. You don't go to Abraham's bosom anymore. You go right to be with the Lord. Amen. All of this is because of Jesus' death for you guys. All of this is because of his death, burial, and resurrection for all of us. It's through the gospel. So you think of the Holy Spirit. Rejoice that you have a different relationship with God, which is manifest through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of the richness of our inheritance of who we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is in us. And we are in God. The Bible says that our lives are hid with God in Christ so rejoice in who you are in him, but rejoice more about who he is in you. Amen? And be thankful for the eternal life that you have. But don't hoard the gift. Amen? The Holy Spirit's like water, right? right? And he's like wind. Amen? And he doesn't want to be contained. He wants to spread his love and the life of Christ to as many people as, he is, as are willing. Amen? So go about and share the good news of Christ because people need to be born again by the Spirit. But that doesn't happen until they put their trust in Jesus. Amen? So share the gospel, share the good news, and that's what the Holy Spirit's all about. And a true spirit-filled fellowship will not only have a love for God's truth, a love for Jesus, and a glorifying Jesus, and love amongst one another, but there'll also be a fellowship that gets the salt out of the shaker, amen? Because that's the work of the Spirit, and spirit-filled fellowship. People want the lost to be saved because the love of God for the lost has been shed abroad in our hearts, and they'll love one another, amen? So let's continue to walk in the Spirit and love one another, amen? Can we all please stand?